again at this all-important first verse. It's a verse that I trust you have memorized, but it is very good for our souls to see it in black and white in the pages of our Holy Bibles. Uh, Since we find this verse in this book, we know that it is true and that we can stake our very souls upon it. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're unpacking the glory of this verse by breaking it into four parts. And the first part is what we looked at last week. It's the heart of the verse. Two words that are really at the center of the gospel. It's the words no condemnation. Last week we looked at those two words and and we wanted to know what is this condemnation that Christians have been saved from? And we found that this condemnation is the sentence that God has pronounced upon all humanity because of our sins. We saw that this condemnation is a present reality. That is, every person who is not a believer in Jesus Christ stands condemned in God's sight even now. And all that remains for them is for the sentence to be carried out. And it is a terrible sentence, though a just sentence, an eternity of torment in hell. We saw that it's an eternity of inner torment and outer torment in the midst of loneliness and darkness and hopelessness and that this is the wrath of God that our sins deserve, the wrath of God to which most human beings on our planet today are headed. But for us who are Christians, we used to be headed in that direction. But our verse says that there is now no condemnation for us. And that word no means no. It is a word of totality. There is zero condemnation for us. There is zilch condemnation for us. We now exist in a state of eternal non-condemnation. Don't misunderstand this. There are so many Christians in our culture today who are very confused about this. They have the idea that Christians can come in and out of condemnation. That right now I might be free from condemnation, but as soon as I sin again, God's judgment is back upon me. And then I have to pray and I have to ask for forgiveness again. And then when I ask for forgiveness again, suddenly no condemnation until I sin again. And then suddenly I'm back in condemnation again. I have to go and ask to ask, I have to ask forgiveness again. And the Christian who thinks this way, and I've met many, and I bet you know some of them. The Christians who think this way, their worst fear is that they will commit a sin and die before they have a chance to ask forgiveness. Because they're afraid that if they don't ask forgiveness after every sin, then they're back under condemnation and their souls will be condemned. Friends, when Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he means there is therefore no condemnation. You don't go back into it while you are in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian, you are a Christian once and for all time, and therefore you are free from condemnation once and for all time. 
Jesus has saved us not only from the punishment that our past sins deserve. Jesus has saved us from the punishment that our present sins deserve and that our future sins deserve. This is the good news. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for you now and there never will be. The very moment you first believed, right then and there, all of your sins, past, present, and future, were covered by the blood of Christ. And that is a wonderful place to be. That is a liberating place to be. Now, there are objections to this. This is why Paul in Romans 6 right, had to answer all these objections. Paul, if you preach that, won't people just go sin and sin and sin some more and say, I trust Jesus, my future sins are, are covered. And so he, he had to deal with that, and we had to deal with that in Romans 6. But another objection is this one. If God has already forgiven me, even of my future sins, why does He command us to then pray and ask forgiveness? If, if it is true that there is no condemnation ever, and that even when I sin, that sin is already forgiven, why does God tell us then to continually go to Him and ask forgiveness? For example, why did Jesus teach His disciples to pray, forgive us our trespasses, if their trespasses were already forgiven? Have you ever thought about this question before? you ever wrestled with this? At first, it seems like a really difficult question, but I, I actually don't think that it is. If we remember that our relationship to God is a covenant relationship, and we know something about covenant relationships because they're all around us every day. God gave us an example of this right in the midst of our lives. We see marriages all around us. Many of us are in a marriage covenant. We know how covenant relationships work. In marriage, a man and a woman are united together by sacred promises. Do you know what unites you and God together? You have believed sacred promises that He has made to you. Man and woman will love each other till death do they part. And this means husband and wife will forgive one another for all of the sins that are going to happen. When they stand at the altar and make that vow, if they know what they're doing, they're saying to one another, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, and I'm going to sin against you, and you're going to sin against me. But you know what? We're going to forgive and love each other. And we're going to continue to live together. When that man and that woman stand at the altar and place the rings on one another's fingers... They may not know what trials are ahead of them, but if they know anything of the truth, they know that they will sin against one another from time to time. And they are declaring right then and there that they will forgive and that they will love. And so when I sin against my wife, I don't have to worry about whether or not she is going to forgive me. And when she sins against me, she doesn't have to worry about whether or not I'm going to forgive her. We said, till death do we part, and we meant it. And we know that, and there's security in that. No matter what I might do to her, no matter what she might do to me, there is love, there is forgiveness. This is the wonderful security of marriage. We have promised never to forsake each other. But let me ask you a question. Does this mean 
that when I have lost my temper with my wife or treated her in some wicked way, that I shouldn't ask her forgiveness. Yes, I know that she already forgives me. Yes, I know that she still loves me. Yes, I know she's not going to forsake me. Does that mean I should not still go to her and confess my sin and ask her forgiveness? Of course not. Because even while our covenant relationship is secure, the vitality of that relationship depends upon these things. I should not expect my wife to be warm towards me, to be eager to be around me, if I am refusing to own up to what I have done. She loves me, she forgives me, but I have still hurt her and I am still the object of her displeasure. She's disappointed in me. She's saddened by what I've done. We can't continue on in blessedness. Now, we'll continue on, husband and wife, covenant relationship. But the relationship won't be full of joy until I go and confess and ask forgiveness. This is exactly how it is with us and God. Through Jesus Christ, from the moment we first believe and enter into that covenant, we have forgiveness. We have the wonderful reality of no hell. We have the joyful promise that God is our Father and He will be our Father forever. But you know what that means? It means that when you sin, you will experience His fatherly displeasure. It's no longer God is your enemy and He's going to condemn you to hell. Jesus has taken care of that. Now He is your Father and you live in His love, but your sins still grieve Him. Your sins still sadden Him. And you should not expect your prayer times to be sweet or your Bible reading to be glorious while you are refusing to own up to your sins and ask His forgiveness. What you should expect from Him is discipline. When we believe on Christ, the forgiveness of all our sins, past, present, and future, is a true and legal reality. But it is as we come to God day in and day out, confessing our sins, asking His forgiveness, that this reality is experienced in space and time. That which is already true in the courts of heaven, no condemnation, now and forever is experienced by us on a daily basis as we run to God after every sin and say, Dear God, I've done it again. Thank you that you are abounding in steadfast love. By the blood of Christ, forgive me. Pardon my iniquity. All of that is true. But don't miss the importance of the word no. No condemnation. Yes, you should be daily going to God and asking forgiveness. But that doesn't change the fact that when you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are forgiven now and forever. And you need not fear for even one second, dear Christian, that you will ever be cast into that place called hell that we spent so much time on last week. A terrifying place, but through Jesus Christ, it is not your place. It is not your home. Heaven is where you are going by the blood of Christ. But that's what we must look at now. 
This is the second part of the verse that I want us to focus on. It's the end of the verse. For those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for who? Who is there no condemnation for? For those who are in Christ Jesus. How important it is that you and I be certain that we are in Christ Jesus. And so let me unpack this by asking you this question. If someone were to come up to you and to ask, what is a Christian? What makes somebody a Christian? How would you answer that question? There are some answers that we might be tempted to give that as soon as we would say them, we would know, no, that's, that's not right. For example, we might, tempted to, might be tempted to say, well, it's, it's those who go to church. Or those who have been baptized, or those who are members on a church roll, they're, they're Christians. But as soon as we say that, we would know, wait, that's, that's not true. Because there are many who have done those things that their lives prove that they are not true followers of Christ. So we think a little deeper. Now, what really is a Christian? And, and we might say, well, a Christian is someone who has chosen to follow Jesus. A Christian is somebody who has believed on Christ. A Christian is someone who trusts Christ and therefore lives a life of obedience to Him. And when we say those things, we're getting at the truth. Those things really do describe what a Christian is. But notice that Paul doesn't use any of those words in verse 1. He doesn't say, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who choose to follow Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who live a life of trusting obedience to Jesus. No, he goes for something more fundamental, something more, more at the root, something that's at the heart of what it really means to be a Christian. And it's this, a Christian is someone who is in Christ Jesus. Everything else springs out of that. That's the root. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Paul talks this way all the time. We don't. Why not? Do we not understand it? What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Well, thankfully, we're not left without answers. In fact, we studied this in a lot of detail back in Romans 5. Uh, that's really the heartbeat of the book of Romans when he explains this in Romans 5. What we learned there is that every person on planet Earth today can be separated into one of two categories. You are either in Adam or in Christ. There is no other place to be. You are one of those. One of those is your federal head. One of those is your representative before God. And to understand what it means to be in Christ, all you have to do is think about what it means to be in Adam. Adam was our representative in the garden. Adam stood for every single one of us as the ambassador of the human race, as the head of the human race. And God came to Adam, and God made a covenant with Adam. And this covenant was not made with Adam alone. It was a covenant made with man. What does the name Adam mean? Man. God made a covenant with mankind in Adam. 
God created human beings. He gave them a dignity that no other creature has. Humans were set above all the other creatures. And we were called to imitate God in having dominion over this earth. God gave to man this incredible garden which richly provided for everything that man could need. God told Adam, you can eat from all the trees in the garden except for one. And I'm going to give you my bountiful care. God blessed and he blessed and he blessed Adam in the garden. He came and he walked and he talked with Adam and with Eve. And here was the covenant that he made with them. Live in trusting obedience to me and I will bless you. Turn away from me, disobey me, and that blessing will turn into a curse. And then God placed on Adam the law. He gave Adam the law and said, Adam, you must obey the law. And do you know what the law was for Adam? It was not pages and pages and pages of commandments. It wasn't even two tablets of stone. The law that God gave to Adam was one command. Just one. This was not hard. Adam, don't eat of that one tree. Just that one. To remind you that I'm God and you're not. To remind you of that you're creature, that I'm creator. I have one restriction. Don't eat of that tree. If you do, our fellowship will be broken. And your great life will turn into death. And as we know... Adam broke the commandment. He did so knowingly. He did so willingly. And therefore the righteous curse of God came upon him. But not just upon him. I know this is really, really hard for our individualistic society to understand. But in the reckoning of God, there is a thing called corporate solidarity. The human race was one in Adam, so that when Adam sinned, the human race sinned. His fall was our fall. His curse was our curse. You and I are born into a cursed race. We are born into a race that is already guilty before God. We are guilty before God before we even commit our first sin. Because we are in Adam. Paul sums it up, Romans 5, 18. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. That's what it means to be in Adam. It means to be legally, federally united to Adam so that his sin is your sin and his curse is your curse. Now, if that's what it means to be in Adam in Romans 5, what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus in Romans 8? Dear friends, this is the glory of the gospel. When we believe on Jesus Christ, we are transferred from legal union with Adam to legal union with Christ. You see, Jesus came as the second man, the second Adam. And just as Adam represented the entire human race before God in the garden, Jesus represented every person who would ever believe on him in his life and his death. The same covenant, the covenant of works, it's still in effect. Obey and you will be blessed. Disobey and you will be cursed. For Adam, it was only one commandment given, not when Jesus came. 
When Jesus came, he came as a Jew, he came as a man, not only under the moral law of God, but under the Mosaic law of God. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he had to submit to all of that. Not only that, but God's will for Jesus was that he go to the cross and die. And yet, unlike Adam, Jesus obeyed his father perfectly. And the promise was, if you obey me, you will be blessed. And therefore, Jesus entered into full and perfect blessing. And as our representative, when we believe on Jesus, we enter into that full and that perfect blessing. Our guilt is taken away. And Christ's righteousness is accounted to us. So we've said it before so many times. Adam's F's were on our report card the day we were born. And all we've done is added our own F's on top of his. When we believe on Jesus, those F's are wiped away and his A's are placed on our report card before God. It's all grace. Dear friends, feel the blessing of this. Jesus will never, ever, ever be condemned. Jesus was already condemned once. He had never committed a sin, but for sinners, he was condemned on the cross. We'll see that in uh, verses 3 and 4 of Romans 8. Jesus was condemned once, but dear friend, Jesus will never be condemned again. And therefore, if you are in Christ, you can never be condemned. When you believe, you are united to Jesus so that what happens to Jesus happens to you. This is Ephesians 2, right? We're told even when Jesus ascended to the heavenly places, there was a real sense in which you ascended to the heavenly places. What happens to Jesus happens to you. You are His bride. You are His body. You are His church. You are one with Him when you believe. Which means the only way you could ever go to hell is if He was cast into hell. Dear friends, will God the Father ever cast His Son into hell? Then He will never cast you either if you are in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that leads us to the most pressing question of all. How does one go from being in Adam to in Christ Jesus? What do we have to do to have this legal transfer? You you can't go to Nashville to to the courthouse and, and say... Can you give me a document transferring me from Adam? This is beyond them. What do we do? How can we have this transfer happen? And the Bible's answer is the same. From Genesis 3 all the way to the end of Revelation, it's the same. Believe. Trust. Faith. Now understand, when I talk about faith... I am not saying simply that all you have to do is assent intellectually to what I am saying. In other words, I'm not saying that faith is simply believing that God exists or believing with your mind that Jesus lived and died and, and rose again. There are The devil believes those things, right? It's not simply acknowledging facts that makes yourself a Christian, that makes you in Christ Jesus. No, real faith not only acknowledges the facts, but then comes to the Jesus of those facts. Faith is moving beyond hearing the gospel message, Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. And doesn't just say, yes, that's true, but then cast yourself upon the mercy of that Jesus. And says, Jesus, I have nothing to bring before you. 
I have nothing to offer up to God, but you have done everything for me. I rest completely in what you have done. We've said it before. All our eggs are in this basket, right? And if this basket doesn't hold, we're in trouble because this is everything for us, right? This is it. Jesus is our only hope. This is how the Father designed the scheme of salvation to work. He is a, a God of tender mercy. Our God is a God of compassion. And whenever anybody, I don't care how bad they are, if Hitler had come to God, raising the white flag, confessing his sins, longing to be forgiven, longing to be saved and changed, he would have been saved. And I don't care how vile we are or what we've done when we raise the white flag of surrender and say, I have no hope of Christ, but I throw myself on Christ. God always draws near to the humble. He always responds with salvation to those who come to him in that way. It's only those who try to bargain with him that he rejects. Those who come before him and say, see, God, I've been pretty good. I just need a little extra help. I've been pretty righteous, God. I just didn't make it all the way. Can you, can, you, can you meet me halfway, God? That kind of talk enrages the holy heart of God. But those who know the weight of their own sins and cry out like the tax collector in the Gospels, have mercy on me, a sinner. Remember him? Tax collector, there's the Pharisee over there. I'm glad I'm not like this man. I fast, I tithe. And the tax collector's over here and he can't even look up to heaven. He just says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. When we come to God in that way, that's faith. That's what puts you in Christ Jesus. The Father calls us to come to him in faith. Just listen to some of these invitations. The Bible is full of them. Isaiah 45, 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Joel 2, 12 and 13. Even now declares the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and He is merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. Were the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, Learn from me, for I am gentle and I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Church, this is the gospel. I don't know any other way to preach it than to preach it like this. And so I simply say, as I've said a hundred times before, if there's anyone in here who has not believed on Christ, Hear God's invitation and believe. 
Trust the Lord Jesus and be made in Christ Jesus. Now, one more point to make. We have to make this point from those last words in Romans 8. It's an obvious one. See the exclusivity of Jesus. That is, see that He is the only way of salvation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. There is no other one. There's no other second Adam. There is no other Savior who has fulfilled the covenant of works on your behalf. There is nobody else who can represent you before the courts of heaven. There is only one who has lived a perfect life of obedience that can now be accounted to you in God's sight. Islam doesn't even address this issue. Islam has no answer for how you can be declared right before a holy God. The God of Islam sweeps sins under the carpet and ignores them. As long as your good deeds outweigh your sins, you're going to be okay. The sins don't even have to be paid for. You can dishonor Allah's name. You can trample Allah's name in the dust. And he doesn't even say that that has to be paid for. That's the glory of the phony God, Allah. But the true God, He pays for sins. He says, I will not be unrighteous. I will be a justifier, but I will also be just. Right? And that's why we have the cross. Christianity is the only religion. Jesus is the only way that God remains just and the justifier of those who believe. The answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus has done everything necessary for God to be right in making you right. Apart from Jesus, God wouldn't be right in saving you. He wouldn't be God. He would, he would compromise His own holiness. But the cross was the answer. Now the teaching of our culture, of course, is that all religions are basically the same. Um, it's the old illustration of the four blind men and the elephant, right? One man feels the trunk of the elephant, and he says, oh, this creature is long and slender. Another guy feels the, the ear of the elephant, and he says, no, 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 this creature is thin and floppy. And the third person feels the tail of the elephant and says, no, this creature is thin and wispy. And fourth person feels the leg of the elephant, and he says, no, you've all got it wrong. This, this creature is like a tree. He's round and firm. And our modern culture says that's how it is with religions. All of them have some of the truth and none of them have all of it, right? They're all talking about the same God. They're just coming at God from different perspectives and they all have something right to say and none of them have it completely right. So Christianity knows something about God and Islam knows something about God and Hinduism knows something about God. And you know what you can do if you're smart. You can study all the religions and take the parts that you think are right and begin putting the puzzle together. But in the end, it doesn't matter which religion you decide to go with, they're all going to lead to the same God. They all take you to the same place in the end. Church, that is baloney. That is just untrue. It is wrong. It is a lie from the pit of hell. The Bible clearly claims that Jesus is the exclusive, only way to salvation. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 
So Jesus is either the only way or Jesus is a liar. There is no middle ground. There is no middle view in which you can say Jesus is a way alongside other ways. No, Jesus said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father but by me, which means he is either the only way or he's a liar and not a way at all. Either Christianity is the only true religion or it's not true at all. It cannot be a true religion. It cannot be. Islam is a dead end. Buddhism is a dead end. Hinduism is a dead end. But faith in Jesus, where does that path lead? Well, it leads straight through no condemnation to being at peace with the Father. So again, I close with the invitation for all of us to make sure that we are trusting Christ. Do not delay. If you are here tonight and you're not a believer, run to him in your hearts and be saved. He is the only way to God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.